Daniel faints. He's out cold. He's then awakened by the angel who touches him and strengthens him and reveals to him that he's about to deliver him a truth from God. And he gives the synopsis of that message to him in verse 14. Now I have come to give you an understanding of what will happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision pertains to the days yet future. He's going to deliver a message to Daniel, a message that pertains to the future events for Israel all the way until the latter days, which covers the period that lasts until the Messiah returns for the nation. The angels strengthen Daniel three times during this introduction to the point that he's ready to receive what they have to tell him. And in verse 20, the angel tells him that he's in for quite a message as he prepares to deliver it to him. And in a nutshell, that takes us through chapter 10, and now we're ready to look at chapter 11. So chapter 11 begins the prophecy itself. And I mentioned before that it's because of chapters 10 through 12 that many critics believe Daniel to be a fake book. And really, we can boil that down to chapter 11, verses roughly 2 through 35. It's in these verses that we have some of the most detailed and historically verifiable prophetical events that the Bible records. In a funny way, the critics of Daniel actually help verify the authenticity of the book because the reason that they say that it's fake is because the facts in verses 2 through 35 of this chapter are so historically accurate that they agree that you can take these events in these verses and pinpoint with exact detail the historical data found in the history books. Of course, they would claim that that proves that Daniel must have been written really in the 2nd century B.C. instead of the 6th century B.C. because they would say that he couldn't, there's no way he could have gotten so many details right unless he was looking back at history rather than somebody telling him this beforehand. Now I know, or at least I hope that I know, that we don't have an issue here with recognizing the authenticity of the book of Daniel We know that it's accurate because God knew what was going to take place during this time period. But I want to point this out so that you're aware that there um, are many out there who would dismiss Daniel because it is so accurate, as absurd as that sounds. They fail to realize that it's accurate because it was given by God, and that's seen really in the last part of chapter 10. Um, Look, look at the verse part of verse 21 of chapter 10 where he said, however, I will tell you what is inscribed in the writing of truth. All that Daniel is about to hear from this angel, it's already been written. It's already been determined by God. This isn't revealed to Daniel because God looked ahead and saw it down the road. It was revealed to Daniel because God wrote it. And so as we go through chapter 11, keep in mind that this is the sovereign plan of God in action. All the events that will take place here, all of them were yet future to Daniel, while most of the things that we're going to talk about are in our past. In fact, all the things we're going to talk about today are in our past, but they were all sovereignly determined by God. And to me, that makes the events in this chapter all the more exciting and interesting to note because we're not just reading history. We're going to talk about history today, but we're not just reading history. We're reading sovereignty here. We're seeing God tell Daniel exactly what he's going to do and how he's going to do it. And there isn't going to be anything that anybody can do to stop it. No one stopped it in the past and no one is going to stop it in the future. So let's look at these, start looking at these events and we're going to try to make it, I know, hold, hold your breath, we're going to try to make it through verse 35 today. All the way through verse 35, as improbable as that sounds, but that is our goal and we'll see just how far we actually get. And you'll notice I'll probably be looking at the clock quite often this morning, so... So look at verse one with me. And in the first year of Darius the Mede, I arose to be an encouragement and a protection for him. Now, here's the angel still talking. And he gives us a little more insight into his activities. Verse one of chapter 11 really best goes with the ending of chapter 10. It's a continuation of the details of the angel's activities. He gives Daniel a glimpse into the spiritual workings of the angels. It says here it was in the first year of Darius. He's talking about two years prior. Remember, Darius was either another name for Cyrus, the Persian, 
or he was a sub-ruler put over the nation of Babylon by Cyrus. Either way, it's talking about the first year of the Medo-Persian rule after they took over from Babylon. At that time, there was a transition that took place from one nation to another. The angel here says that he also arose that year, and I would take it to mean that he was assigned to watch over the Medo-Persian Empire at that time as its protector. When the Medo-Persians took over, this was the angel assigned to Medo-Persia. Now remember in chapter 10, he was combating or at least disputing with the prince of Medo-Persia or the demon that was over Medo-Persia, which was his nation to watch over. Now the question from this verse is, who was it that he talks about when he says he, was, he rose to encourage and protect? Who was he talking about? Who was he encouraging and protecting? Just because of the construction of the way that this verse is situated between the end of chapter 10 and chapter 11, there is debate on whether he means Darius or whether he was referring back to Michael the archangel. Personally, I believe he's talking about Darius here. If you recall, shortly after Darius came to power, he was faced with a moral decision that ended up sending him, uh, send, ended up with him sending one of his best advisors or his best advisor into a den of lions. It was, it was really a moral decision of his own making, but we'll put that aside for a second. Back in chapter six. And the outcome of that was that an angel came and shut the mouths of the lion and allowed Daniel to escape from the lion's den unharmed. But afterwards, Darius makes the following decree. Back in chapter six, verses 26 and 27, it said, I make a decree that in all the dominion of my kingdom, men are to fear and tremble before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and enduring forever. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed and his dominion will be forever. He delivers and rescues and performs signs and wonders in heaven and on earth, who has also delivered Daniel from the power of the lions." In that very first year, Darius is persuaded by the power of God. Seen through the protecting actions of an angel that delivers Daniel from harm, and he makes a decree that is favorable to both God and to the people of Israel. And there was also something else that happened in that first year of Darius's reign, which would have been the first year of Cyrus's reign as well. In Ezra 1.1, it says, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom. And that proclamation that he sent in Ezra was to send the Israelites back to their land to rebuild the temple. So if Cyrus and Darius are the same person, or at least if they have a very close relationship to one another, then I think this here is very significant. Personally, I think that what's in view here was that the angel was assigned to be a guiding influence to the ruler of Persia. So I think that's what it's talking about there in verse one. Now, after his introduction, he's going to tell Daniel about the path to the future with a discussion on the kings that are going to come next. Verses two through 35 are going to be a history lesson for us because they are events that have all occurred in our past. But to Daniel... These were all yet future. And that's the one thing I think we need to keep in mind as we go through this. Daniel has no idea about any of these things. He has no idea what his angel's talking about when he's talking about these people and events. But for us, this is all history. So today, if history isn't your thing, and if you're thinking to yourself, oh no, not a history lesson, why can't he do a math lesson like he did a few weeks ago, right? I know some of you are probably wanting a math lesson, but... But if history is not your thing, you just have to bear with me this morning. We're going to get, we're going to, I'm going to turn on the fire hose here with history. So, but we're going to look at these things with understanding of how incredible it is that all of these things were laid out in detail for Daniel before they ever happened. In some cases, hundreds of years before they ever happened. And as we go through this, just be impressed with the marvelous sovereignty of God. So we start in verse two. And now, I tell, and now I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings are going to arise in Persia. Then a fourth will gain far more riches than all of them. As soon as he becomes strong through his riches, he will arouse the whole empire against the realm of Greece. He starts off telling him, I will tell you the truth. And you, everybody has a handout, so I'm hoping that the handout helps everybody follow along because there's going to be a lot of names 
that come up through here, and I don't expect anybody to remember all the names. Like I said, just use that sheet for reference as we talk about some of the names. But he starts off saying, I will tell you the truth. And the truth, again, is what he was saying back in verse 21 of chapter 10, the writing of truth. And he says, three more kings are going to arise in Persia than a fourth. So there are four kings in view here, with the fourth one being the important one, the one that is focused on. After Cyrus, as far as history goes, after Cyrus, he was succeeded by his son, Cambyses, from 530 to 522 BC. That's king number one. He was followed by a man named Pseudo-Smerdis, who took the throne claiming to be the brother of Cambyses, thus usurping the throne in 522 BC. And that was king number two. And you'll see with Cambyses, or with Pseudo-Smerdis, there's only one year, that's because he ruled for seven months. Following him was a king named Darius Hystaspes. I don't know if I can pronounce all these right, but you've got them written there. Who reigned until 522 to 486 BC. That's king number three. Now after Darius Hystaspes, we have a man by the name of Xerxes, who is also known as Ahasuerus. And that's the name that he's recorded as in the book of Esther some 30 times. It's Ahasuerus that's the first of the five major kings that are seen throughout this chapter. He was one of the greatest rulers of Persia, and he amassed great wealth in his reign. And with that wealth, he was also able to amass a great army. You have a lot of wealth, make a, make a big army. In fact, the army of Xerxes, or, Ahasu, or, or Hazuerus, I'm going to say Xerxes, just because that's easier to say for me, has been called the greatest army in the ancient world. Now, why do you, well, what do you do when you have amassed a great army? You spend all this money on a great army, what do you do with it? Well, you start looking for a fight, and that's exactly what he did. And one of the countries that he turned his attention toward was Greece. In fact, Persia had wanted to attack Greece for quite some time, but hadn't had the proper resources to do it. That was until Xerxes built his big army. However, even with his great army, he could not conquer Greece. He was soundly defeated. The logistics of such an attack just could not be overcome, and so he had to withdraw. Now, you can see how this maps out here when we look at some of the details in verse 2. The riches, the strength, the arousing of the empire against Greece, that's all there in history. Now, in effect, what did Xerxes end up doing by attacking Greece? Well, he gave Greece a bloody nose, but he did no real damage. But the Greeks didn't forget it. This started a rivalry between the Greeks and the Persians, and the Greeks hated the Persians because of this. It's kind of like the old football rivalries, right? Huskers and Sooners. Some of us know Huskers and Sooners. Um, it's like, why do they hate each other? We don't know. We just know that they hate each other, right? Well, why did the Greeks and the Persians hate each other? Don't know. They just always hated each other. So for another 150 years, the Greeks hated the Persians. Now look at verse 3. And a mighty king will arise, and he will rule with great authority and do as he pleases. So this is the next king that's seen here. And this is a king that we've seen before. Not a Persian king, but this is a Greek one. There's a gap in time here. This is about 150 years later when a man by the name of Alexander comes on the scene. This is Alexander the Great. What did he do? He finally was able to bring Greece the revenge that it wanted against the Persians, and he swept through like lightning and soundly defeated the Persian nation. There was no one to stop him. He did what he pleased, went wherever he wanted, and he ruled absolutely, even having himself declared to be a god. In just three years, Alexander conquered the known world. Many say he was the greatest military mastermind that ever lived. But then he had a sudden end because at just the age of 33, Alexander the Great died. And we talked quite a bit about Alexander when we studied through chapter 8, so I won't go through all the details there again. But after he died, his kingdom was divided. The one thing we have to remember was that his kingdom was divided after he died. Look at verse 4. But as soon as he arises, his kingdom will be broken up and parceled out toward the four points of the compass, though not to his own descendants, nor according to his authority which he wielded, for his sovereignty will be uprooted and given to others besides them. 
This is a tremendously accurate depiction of the Greek empire after Alexander. And keep in mind, Daniel's receiving this 200 years before it happens. Alexander conquered the world and then died suddenly, says as soon as he has arisen. He had two heirs. He had two sons. One was illegitimate and that one was born after he died and they were both murdered. Both of his sons were murdered. He also had a half-brother, but he was murdered. He had no family. No one was left to take over the kingdom that he had built, not to his own descendants, it says in the verse. So what happened to his kingdom? It ultimately went to four of his generals. It was divided up to the four winds, four different directions from Israel. Cassander took Macedonia, Lysimachus took Thrace in the Asia Minor area, Seleucus took Syria and over into Babylon, and Ptolemy took Egypt. North, south, east, and west, from the direction of Israel, around Israel, everything around Israel was surrounded. And yet not one of them came to be as powerful as the unified kingdom that Alexander had achieved, nor according to his authority which he wielded. They were all taken by others, dead on once again. Now in the following verses, it's the Seleucid and the Ptolemaic kingdoms that are going to be in view here. They're going to, what, they're going to be what take center stage. Greek was divided into four parts, but the Seleucids and the Ptolemies become the important parts, especially as concern Israel. And the reason for that is because they were the two that actually connected right there around Israel, and they had fights that went back and forth through the land of Palestine. So the Seleucids were in Syria, which is north of Israel. Ptolemy took Egypt, which was south of Israel. So keep that in mind. Now look at verse 5. Then the king of the south will grow strong along with one of his princes who will gain ascendancy over him and obtain dominion. His dominion will be a great dominion indeed. So we start off with the king of the south. This was the Ptolemaic kingdom down in Egypt. Throughout this whole thing, when you, when you hear Ptolemy or Ptolemaic, think south. When you hear Seleucid, think north. So, and yet that's written out there on the sheet as well. So we start off with the king of the south, the Ptolemaic kingdom. Throughout the next several verses, we're going to see several southern and northern kings, and they'll be talked about as king of the south and king of the north. And it won't all be talking about the same two kings, but it will be dealing with the same two kingdoms. So right off, the king of the south grows strong, along with one of his princes, it says. This is another person, another of Alexander's princes, or generals as we know them. This prince is a ruler of the north, one of the Seleucids. The indication here is that the south will first become powerful, and then the north will gain supremacy over the south. The Ptolemies in history start off, started off stronger, then the Seleucids rise to gain dominion over them. And actually for the next 200 years, the Ptolemies and the Seleucids will wage wars back and forth. And in, but initially, this is the way that it happened, how it started off. And after a while, the king of the south, Ptolemy Philadelphus, offered his daughter Bernice to the king of the north, Antiochus Theos, as a sort of truce. That's kind of the way they did things back in those days, right? We want a truce, we want a treaty, so here's my daughter. I'm offering my daughter in, as truce. Well, look at verse 6. And after some years, they will form an alliance. And the daughter of the king of the south will come to the king of the north to carry out a peaceful arrangement. So we see here the angel presents it exactly how it happened. King of the south's daughter is presented to the king of the north. Now the problem was Antiochus Theos was already married to a woman named Laodice. And so he already had a wife. Here comes the wife from the other kingdom. He has to put his wife away. So he divorces her in order for this to happen, and that's what he does. Well, Antiochus and Bernice have a son together, and then after a couple years, Ptolemy Philadelphus, Bernice's father, um, dies. And so Antiochus Theos doesn't see any need to keep the treaty anymore. Oh, I married his daughter. He's dead. 
So he sends Bernice and their son away. And then he decides to say, hey, Laodice, my, my ex-wife, why don't you come back to me? Well, sounds like it could be a happy ending, except for the whole woman scorned thing. Laodice didn't want Bernice's son ascending to the throne someday, so she ends up poisoning her husband and then tracking down and killing Bernice and their son as well. Look at the end of verse 6. It says, but she will not retain her position of power, nor will he remain with his power, but she will be given up along with those who brought her in and the one who sired her, as well as he who supported her in those times. All of that really they could just be summed up by saying, everyone's going to die. And that's exactly what happens here. They're all killed, right? She, she's killed, he's killed, everybody's killed. And that's what happens. But it doesn't end there. Look at verse 7. Then it says, But one of the descendants of her line will arise in his place. Now, I know it's easy to get lost, so stay here with me. Stay here as much as you can. I know this is, a, like I said, a fire hose. The her in this verse is Bernice, and the his is Ptolemy Philadelphus. This is the ascension of the one who came after him in the south, in Egypt. The next king to follow was Ptolemy III, also known as Ptolemy Ergetes. He was Bernice's brother. Note, the verse doesn't say that he would be her descendant, but one of the descendants of her line, her brother. Read on, what will he do? And he will come against their army and enter the fortress of the king of the north, and he will deal with them and display great strength. So with a treaty... Between the two kingdoms, now a thing of the past, since his sister was murdered by the king's ex-wife, who then became his wife again and murdered the king, the kingdoms are once again at war, no more treaty between them, so he attacks the north. This is all very much sounds like a soap opera, doesn't it? Very soap opera-ish, but this is it. At this time, a man by the name of Seleucus Colonicus is on the throne of the north. And he was the son of Laodis. And you start to see how this all comes full circle. Ptolemy Eurgates, holding a grudge against the Seleucids, brings his army up north and defeats Callinicus on and the northern army. One of the most complete victories in that war between them. Then look at verse 8. And also their gods and their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold he will take into captivity to Egypt. And he, on his part, will refrain from attacking the king of the north for some years. He ends up taking the treasures back to Egypt with him. In fact, this campaign was seen as something of a liberation of Egyptian vessels and artifacts as well as he was able to take not only the northern kingdom's items, but retrieve items that had been taken from Egypt many years before. It was quite a successful campaign. But note this, and, and again, I want to remind you, once again, this is being told to Daniel hundreds of years before it actually happened. Hundreds of years before these people even existed. The angel sent by God telling him out of the things that God has written relating with great detail. Even that last part where it says, he on his part will refrain from attacking the king of the north for some years. Ptolemy had thoroughly defeated Seleucus Callinicus so that he didn't need to go back. Callinicus had been weakened to the point that he wasn't a threat anymore. In fact, years later, he tried to attack the south unsuccessfully. Look at verse 9. Then the latter will enter the realm of the king of the south, but he will return to his own land. The latter is whom? The king of the north from verse 8, Callinicus, who we've been talking about. He went down to Egypt, he attacked, but he was driven back. So he had no choice but to return home. As we know from history, Callinicus died falling off his horse, and that was his end. But he has two sons. Two sons who were not at all happy about the way that their father died or the years where the South had been dom the dominant nation. By the way, keep in mind in the context here, when Syria and Egypt are having these wars and conflicts and battles, going back and forth between the two, the nation going back and forth and back and forth, back and forth, 
Who's right in the middle of all this? Israel is right in the middle of all of this. Every time these armies go back and forth, north to the south, they're going through Israel. They're going through that land. So the people of Israel are very much caught up in all of these wars. So what happens with the sons? Look at verse 10. And his sons will mobilize and assemble a multitude of great forces, and one of them will keep on coming and overflow and pass through, that he may again wage war up to his very fortress. His sons. These are the two sons of Seleucus Callinicus. You note the plural sons are mentioned, but then one son becomes prominent. One of Callinicus's two sons died in a battle in Asia Minor, and the other takes over. He continues on prominently. And this may seem, again, like a small detail, but again, it shows the accuracy of this prophecy. We don't just read about the next king. We read about two being pared down to one, and that is exactly what we know happened. And this one that remained, he became king of the north, and his name, as we know him by, was Antiochus the Great. Antiochus the Great was not happy with the way the south kept ruling things. They kept winning, so he mobilized against them. He kept on coming. And he had an army, a multitude of great forces, it says in the verse. Antiochus the Great had 72,000 infantry, 6,000 cavalry, and 102 elephants. And elephants were very impressive. They were the tanks, the battering rams. They were the heavy armor of the army. Over the next several years, Antiochus was busy reclaiming Syrian lands. He was slowly moving south to Egypt, while the southern king, Ptolemy Philopater, did nothing about it. In fact, he spent the time building up his own army. He had convinced Antiochus that he had already had a large army and thus slowly, or slowed Antiochus' advances which gave him time to actually assemble his own army. He bought himself two years by fooling uh, Antiochus, basically. During that time, uh, Ptolemy Philopater lived a life of luxury while the north slowly made its way down to Egypt. And then the northern army reached one of his own fortresses in Raphia. And that's where the battle truly began between them. Look at verse 11. And the king of the south will be enraged and go forth and fight with the king of the north. Then the latter will raise a great multitude, but that multitude will be given into the hand of the former. When the multitude is carried away, his heart will be lifted up and he will cause tens of thousands to fall, yet he will not prevail. Ptolemy's army had reached 70,000 men, 5,000 cavalry, and 73 elephants. Not quite as large as Antiochus, but they also had the home field advantage. They wouldn't have had the resource restrictions that the north had, so they had the upper hand in this fight. At first, Antiochus seemed to be winning, but he made the mistake of not pressing his advantage and started worrying about the plunder, taking things when he should have been advancing in battle. This allowed Ptolemy to gain the advantage, and he ended up killing 10,000 of Antiochus's men and taking another 4,000 of them captive. This gave Ptolemy Philopater a sense of confidence. It says he had carried a multitude away, and he had killed tens of thousands of the Syrians. And he then, and, and he then made the mistake of not pressing his advantage. Once he had driven Antiochus out of Egypt, he was done. He didn't retake the lands up into Syria, but he did control the land of Israel again, which will be important in just a minute. But after that, he returned back home. So Ptolemy Philopater was not a good king. He was a weak king. He desired an easy life, not a life in the field of waging war. He didn't like to go out to war. He would rather just sit at home and enjoy the spoils and comforts of home. So he was done. He didn't prevail. He defeated the north in battle, but he didn't win the war. He quit. So over the next several years, Egypt became weak. He had to impose taxes for the army and the battles, which led to dissatisfaction in his reign. Everybody loves taxes, right? And eventually, Ptolemy Philopater died died of natural causes without getting anything ready or preparing for future battles, so Egypt fell onto hard times. After his death, his son, Ptolemy Epiphanes, took over in Egypt. 
at the ripe old age of four. He was four years old when he took over. Well, what do you suppose Antiochus the Great did during this time? He was getting ready for battle to try it again. Look at verse 13. For the kings of the north will again raise a greater multitude than the former, and after an interval of some years, he will press on with a great army and much equipment. Thirteen years later, an interval of some years, after Ptolemy Philopater is gone, here comes Antiochus the Great again, this time with a bigger army. He has restocked, he's gotten himself prepared, and not only that, but this time he also enlists some help. Look at verse 14. Now in those times, many will rise up against the king of the south. The violent ones among your people will also lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they will fall down. Many will rise up, it says. Antiochus enlists the help of Philip V of Macedon. Remember, there are other parts of the Greek empire that are still around, although they haven't been involved in most of these battles. Philip comes by sea across the Mediterranean, while Antiochus comes by land, and they form a two-pronged attack against Egypt. But that's not all that join Antiochus. Remember at this time that Israel is under the rule of the Ptolemies, the Ptolemaic kingdom, the Egyptians, which they don't care for. And so there is a contingent of Jews that actually join the fray. And it says here in the verse, the violent ones among your people, Daniel's people, these are the Jews. These were the rebels from Israel who rose to action with Antiochus the Great, and their goal was the liberation of Israel. But as the verse tells us, they were not successful. Their rebellion was short-lived. And I, and I like how the angel tells Daniel here, in order to fulfill the vision. He actually says that in here. Why do we even care about this small group of rebels that fail? What's the significance of that? Why is that put in here? It almost seems like a trivial footnote. Well, I'll tell you why we care. It's to show the accuracy again of the prophecy. That's what the angel tells Daniel. The prophecy doesn't cover every detail, there are more things that these men did, more men that came and went during these periods of time, but the details that are mentioned, they are all certifiable, 100% accurate. Well, let's finish up with the details of Antiochus the Great. Verse 15, Then the king of the north will come, cast up a siege mound, and capture a well-fortified city, and the forces of the south will not stand their ground, not even their choicest troops, for there will be no strength to make a stand. In the area of Phoenicia, in a city called Sidon, the Egyptian general Scopus was defeated just as it says here. Scopus was one of their main generals. The Egyptians had retreated into this well-fortified city for safety, but the northern army piled dirt up around the walls, cast up a siege mound in order to get in and attack them, and they successfully defeated them. Verse 16. But he who comes against him will do as he pleases, and no one will be able to withstand him. He will also stay for a time in the beautiful land with destruction in his hand. This time, Antiochus' army is much more successful, and he is able to take over whatever he wishes. He wins this fight. One of the things that he's able to win back is the beautiful land. What's that? To Daniel and to the angel, this is Israel referring to Israel. He is able to take Israel back from the south. Now, that sounds good, but it is still Israel under Gentile control. I mean, Israel wanted their independence. They didn't want to just be free of the Ptolemies and then be under the Seleucids. Um, but this will play a great role in the rise of another ruler uh, with the same name, Antiochus, which we'll see in just a little bit. So Antiochus the Great is successful, but he does something unexpected next. He either doesn't press his advantage to take over the south, or he finds that he's unable to do it, but in either case, he instead forms an alliance, makes a treaty with Ptolemy Epiphanes. But it's a treaty with deceptive intentions. Verse 17, and he will set his face to come with the power of his whole kingdom, bringing with him a proposal of peace, which he will put into effect. He will also give him the daughter of women to ruin it, but it will not take a stand, but she will not take a stand for him or be on his side. So Antiochus the Great comes down with his army, but instead of conquering, he brings a proposal of peace. Once again, we see the age-old 
take my daughter and marry her approach to treaty making going on here. He gives the king of the south his own daughter, Cleopatra, not the famous Cleopatra, that just happens to be her name, Cleopatra. She's referred to as the daughter of women. This phrase most likely indicates her extreme beauty. What Antiochus does is give his daughter Cleopatra to Ptolemy Epiphanes, who, by the way, at this time is not four years old anymore. He's probably in his late teens at this point. With the intention that she would be able to be an influence on him and also be her father's spy in his kingdom. He attempts to plant her so that he can gain advantage and advantage over Ptolemy, but there's a problem. She ends up liking Ptolemy and siding with him, so his plan backfires, and that's what the angel says here. But she will not take a stand for him or be on his side. She sides with her husband instead of with her father. And again, we see prophecy matching up with history. By then, Antiochus had become power-hungry, and he didn't want to stop. So we see in verse 18, then he will turn his face to the coastlands and capture many, but a commander will put a stop to his scorn against him. Moreover, he will repay him for his scorn. Antiochus the Great decides to move his forces west along the coast and towards Greece, toward the kingdoms that we really haven't spent much time talking about. But he gets to a point where he can't go any further. And why is that? Because at this time, there's another power that's starting to emerge and gain influence in that part of the world. Who might those, who might that be? Rome. Rome is starting to be powerful at this point in time. Antiochus got as far as Thermopylae in Greece, and he was forced back by the Roman commander Scipio. Scipio caused Antiochus to flee back to Syria with his army, and thus Rome's dominance was starting to take hold while Greece was beginning to wane. Rome at this time began ruling the seas, which was a big part of the beginning of their dominance in the the area. And so in verse 19, we see the end of Antiochus the Great, verse 19, so he will turn his face toward the fortresses of his own land, but he will stumble and fall and be found no more. Antiochus didn't like being stopped. It wasn't good for the ego, so what did he do? He turned on his own people. He can't attack and defeat anybody else, so he turns on his own people. He started looting the temples in his own lands, stealing idols and gold out of the temples to their gods. Well, this got the people upset. If you want to turn people against you fast, you start messing with what they deem to be holy. And that's exactly what Antiochus did. That blunder ended up costing him his life at the hands of his own people, and they killed him. Now, as we come to verse 20 and following, we start to see the rise of the next major leader in the line, a man that we've talked about before. This is Antiochus Epiphanes. Verse 20 serves as a transition between the two Antiochuses. Then in his place, one will arise who will send an oppressor through the jewel of his kingdom, yet within a few days he will be shattered, though neither in anger nor in battle. Now immediately following Antiochus Great was his son, Seleucus Philopater. In fact, in the last years of Antiochus the Great's reign, Seleucus reigned as a co-regent with him. And when Antiochus died, Seleucus took over total control. Now, after the defeat by Rome, Rome began to assert its dominance over Greece in the form of tribute or taxes. Rome wanted taxes from Greece. In order to make sure that Greece paid their taxes, they had taken Antiochus the Great's youngest son as a hostage. Now, with Seleucus in charge and Antiochus the Great dead, he had to find a way to continue to pay Rome's taxes, which forced Seleucus to turn to tax his own people. Since Seleucus was now in charge and Antiochus the Great was dead, Rome gave Antiochus the Great's son back, didn't want him anymore, but they took Seleucus's son instead as hostage so that Seleucus would pay taxes. In order to do this, no, uh, yeah, so that Seleucus had the incentive to pay the taxes. Now, in order for Seleucus to pay the taxes, he appointed a man by the name of Heliodorus to take care of this for him. He became the national tax gatherer. Why do we care about Heliodorus? Because the word for oppressor in verse 20 is literally translated a raiser of taxes. 
the one who came after Antiochus sent a tax gatherer throughout his kingdom to collect tribute to send back to Rome. And in 176 BC, where do you think Heliodorus went? He went into Jerusalem. Or as it says in verse 20, the jewel of his kingdom, at least from a prophetic perspective. In Jerusalem, he went and he tried to take the treasure of the temple, but history tells us that he was unsuccessful. Now, shortly after that, we don't really know how long, but it says here that it would be within a few days, Seleucus Philopater dies. He wasn't killed in battle, he was poisoned. He died in mysterious circumstances. Some say that since he was continuing on with the taxes, the people killed him as well. So Seleucus Philopater was no more. Now in verse 21, we meet our fourth ruler. And in his place, a despicable person will arise. That's quite an introduction for anyone, isn't it? What's that? Is that also a razor of taxes? No, no. We'll talk about that in a second. He, 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 okay, we'll talk about that in a second. We've seen that these guys so far haven't been particularly breathtaking in their character or demeanor, but now we have one who's described as despicable. So we already know where this is leading. A despicable person will arise on whom the honor of kingship has not been conferred, but he will come in a time of tranquility and seize the kingdom by intrigue. Now, remember I mentioned earlier that Seleucus Philopater's son was a hostage in Rome. But Antiochus the Great's youngest son no longer was, right? They swapped. He had been a hostage, but he was released when his father died. Well, that son was also named Antiochus, and he came to be known as Antiochus Epiphanes. Now, he was not the true heir to the throne. The true heir would have been the son of Seleucus Philopater, who had just died, but where was Seleucus's son? He was still a hostage in Rome. So what did Antiochus do? He weaseled his way onto the throne. The kingdom was at peace at this time. They weren't involved in any battles, and Antiochus was a smooth talker. Being the only available heir of Antiochus the Great that was available, he took the throne with relative ease. He will come in a time of tranquility and seize the kingdom by intrigue. That's exactly what he did. Then verse 22, and the overflowing forces will be flooded away before him and shattered and also the prince of the covenant. Overflowing forces are the forces of Egypt and the prince would be the high priest of Israel. Early in the reign of Antiochus Epiphanes, the Egyptians came up to wage war with Syria to test out the new king, to try to re-engage in the centuries old animosity between them. And Antiochus met the overflowing forces of the Egyptians and defeated them, shattering them and flooding them back to Egypt. During this campaign, campaign, Antiochus, as he was in Israel, replaced the high priest in Jerusalem, Onias, with his own high priest, Jason. It's the high priest that is seen here as the prince of the covenant here. If you recall from our previous study in chapter 8, this was a key element in the reign of Antiochus Epiphanes and his dealing with Israel. He was bound and determined to Hellenize the Jews, turn them into Greeks, and take away their religion, take away their Jewish culture. And here we see the start to that, putting his own Greek man in as the high priest in Israel. Now keep in mind in these next few verses, Israel is smack dab again in the middle of all this going on, right? All these battles go right through there. They have been all throughout this chapter, but Antiochus Epiphanes is going to actually turn his focus on them at this time. Look at 23. And after an alliance is made with him, he will practice deception and he will go up and gain power with a small force of people. After driving Egypt back, he decided his next course of action would be to make an alliance with Egypt. In effect, deceive them through his power of intrigue. He convinced them that he was no longer a threat. He convinces them that he's their friend. And all the while, his real intention was to build up his army and prepare to conquer them, gaining the trust and support of the people. Antiochus Epiphanes was a true politician, a modern-day example, you might say. He made sure everyone was, was aware that he was their best friend all the while he was plotting how to stab them in the back. Verse 24, in a time of tranquility. In verse 24, here's what he did. Here's what he did at home during his peace treaty. 
Remember, Egypt had attacked him first. They had already been at war, but now with the alliance in place, they were at peace, so he sets about winning over his own people. How does he do that? Here's your answer, Jay. He will enter the richest parts of the realm, and he will accomplish what his fathers never did, nor his ancestors. He will distribute plunder, booty, and possessions among them. What's this saying? What's that? Redistribution. redistribution of wealth. He was Robin Hood. He was playing Robin Hood here. He went into the richest parts of the kingdom, robbing and plundering them, and he distributed wealth to the masses of people. He robbed oh, from the rich. Yeah. <laughs> he robbed from the rich and he gave to the poor. Now, I'll let you draw your own parallels to today's political landscape with this. But what he was doing was he was winning over his own people the masses of people. He had an instant majority in his fan base by doing this. So he took care of his base of strength. And then, and he will devise his schemes against strongholds, but only for a time. He started plotting, planning for war while in this treaty with Egypt. And then we see verse 25, and he will stir up his strength and courage against the king of the south with a large army, so the king of the south will mobilize an extremely large and mighty army for war, but he will not stand, for schemes will be devised against him. Now we see the king of the south again from Egypt, and this time the king of the south is Ptolemy Philometer. Um, Philometer is different than philopater. Well, philometer means lover of his mother. You might say he was a mama's boy. He, he honored his mother with his name. So this is interesting. His mother was Cleopatra, the same Cleopatra that was Antiochus the Great's daughter that he gave to marry the king of the south. So he was Antiochus Epiphany's sister. So now Sorry, she, was Enti- she, Cleopatra, was Antiochus Epiphany's sister. So now this king, Ptolemy Philometer, was Antiochus Epiphany's nephew. He brings up his strength and courage to attack his own nephew in Egypt, who brings up an army to meet him. But, with the, king, but the king of the south will not win, and the reason is because he will be betrayed, betrayed by his own people. It says schemes will be devised against him. It says that right there in the verse. Look at verse 26. And those who eat his choice food will destroy him and his army will overthrow, overflow, but many will fall down slain. His own men side with the Syrians and help Antiochus Epiphanes defeat Ptolemy. Ptolemy loses, he is dethroned and taken captive by Antiochus and massive numbers of Egyptians are killed in the process. But Ptolemy isn't killed. He's taken prisoner but he's not killed, and Antiochus has a need for him. Look at verse 27. As for both kings, their hearts will be intent on evil, and they will speak lies to each other at the same table, but it will not succeed, for the end is still to come at the appointed time. So Ptolemy's brother takes the throne in Egypt, placed there by the people after Ptolemy has been captured, and Antiochus tries to convince Ptolemy to help him defeat his brother, and he lies to him to do this. Ptolemy lies to Antiochus that he'll help, so they lie to each other. And so they go into this deceitful alliance that is doomed to fail, and of course it does fail. Since they are not really working together, but secretly working against each other, they fail to defeat the new king of the south. If they had succeeded, then Antiochus would have taken over all of Egypt, and Ptolemy and Seleucid war would have been over. But guess what? That wasn't in God's sovereign plan. God wasn't going to allow that. It wasn't yet the appointed time for that. So Antiochus had some successes in Egypt, but not all that he wanted. And so he's bitter, he's frustrated, and he heads back to Syria. Verse 28, then he will return to his land with much plunder, but his heart will be set against the holy covenant, and he will take action and then return to his own land. What did he do? He takes his frustrations out on his way back home on Israel. Coming back from Egypt to Syria, he passes right through Israel, and he plundered the city of Jerusalem. He killed thousands, took thousands more captive, and stole out of the treasury of the temple. It's kind of like the attitude where the kid goes to school and gets beat up on by some other kids, and then when he goes home, he beats up his little brother because he's so frustrated. He doesn't like getting picked on, so he goes and picks on somebody weaker. And that becomes his pattern. Look at verse 29. 
At the appointed time, he will return and come into the south, but this last time, it will not turn out the way it did before. He will once again try to take the south. He builds up his army and comes again. He had success last time, but this time he will have no success. And we see why in verse 30, for ships of Kittim will come against him. Oh, those pesky Romans again. Interfering with Greek wars, the ships of Kittim would be the Roman fleet. They come to the aid of the south as Antiochus comes down, and he's thwarted by them. In fact, he's humiliated by them. The Roman commander asked him whether he was going to leave or whether he wanted to fight against Rome, and Antiochus Antiochus tries to stall for time. So what the Roman commander does is where Antiochus was standing, he draws a circle around Antiochus, and he basically tells him, I need your answer before you leave that circle. Well, Antiochus was not prepared to fight Rome, so he has to leave, so he's humiliated. And where does he pass through on his way home? Right through Israel. Therefore, he will be disheartened, and he will return and become enraged at the Holy Covenant and take action. So he will come back and show regard for those who forsake the Holy Covenant. And this time, when he comes back through Israel, things get really bad. We saw a lot of this when we were back in chapter 8, talking about Antiochus Epiphanes there but he loses it. He has no regard for God or his people, and he sides with those who are apostate. You remember, he'd already started Hellenizing people in in Israel, and that had taken hold, and so there were many that were um, kind of on his side that he could use here. Um, So the attack, let's see. Sorry, I know we're out of time, so I'm trying to skip ahead, trying to blast through these last few verses. Verse 31, and forces from him will arise, desecrate the sanctuary fortress, and do away with the regular sacrifice, and they will set up the abomination of desolation, and by smooth words he will turn to godlessness uh, those who act toward him. You know what? We are out of time. I don't want to rush through these last few verses, so I think we're just going to stop here for now. I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to rush it, so I'll just, we'll just finish talking about these last few verses. Almost made it. I got through 30 verses, but not 35, so... Let's close in a word of prayer, and then we can uh, be done for today. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we come to you. We thank you, Lord, so much for uh, this time that we have together. We thank you, Lord, for um, just uh, the time that we have to spend looking at these prophecies in Daniel. And Lord, we praise you, and we thank you so much for your sovereignty. We thank you, Lord, for the truth that you related to Daniel that we have here to study and, and Lord, how we can just map this out and see how this has applied in history. And we know, Lord, that, that your word is not dependent upon outside sources for us, but, but Lord, we just, it is so fascinating for us to see how you've worked through history and to see how these things have all come about. And Lord, we just, we just praise you for that and we thank you for uh, just all, all the way that you've dealt with your people, that you deal with us as your church, and we just praise you, Lord, and thank you for Um, there's all your blessings in our lives. Lord, we just pray that you'd be with us now in the next hour. Pray that you would give us um, a heart to worship you, Lord, and that we would just have understanding as we go through your word. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.